0: And we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So, as you may know, I can be a little bit of a nerd. Uh, I've enjoyed Dungeons & Dragons growing up. I was a big fan of the Lone Wolf series. You know, check out my interview with Joe Dever, which I will link to in the show notes. And of course, Lord of the Rings. And as you know, I've got a whole podcast about pop culture science where we explain everything in the world of film and television, but we haven't done anything about the Lord of the Rings. Well, that's okay because Henry G, you know, uh, he's been on the show before, but luckily he wrote an entire book called The Science of Middle Earth. So we're going to talk about that today. And a lot of the stuff I I hadn't even given it thought. You don't really think about science and fantasy as being in the same world, but it turns out they are much closer than you would think. So let's let's get right into this. Henry, thank you so much for coming back to the show. First things first, you know, we your name is Henry G.E.E. And I often mispronounce it, but it is G like G-Wiz, right?
1: That's correct.
0: Okay. All right. I want to make sure I I, I get this right. Uh, You know, it's funny. I don't think I told you this last time we talked, but I actually know someone whose first name is the letter G. It's literally just Uh the letter G. G Chadwick. Yeah, just G Chadwick Cook. But the G doesn't stand for anything. It's just the letter G. And uh, what, Like he, Harry a-
1: Harry S. Truman. Right?
0: Yeah, his didn't stand for anything either, yeah. did it? Oh. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. which I, I've never seen that in a first name. But, you know, uh, he is probably mm-hmm. one of the greatest voice actors that I've ever heard uh, in a city of uh-huh. phenomenal voice actors. Yeah, yeah, he is. Uh, mm. Yeah, he's phenomenal. That's a shout out to him. He doesn't even know that one's coming. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> uh, something else that I didn't know was coming, Henry, is when I'm reading this book, you know, I'm going through and you, you kind of talk a little bit about your childhood, how you got into things. But, you know, something I didn't know is that you started your scientific journey by studying, as you call it, the total immersion of small garden invertebrates, which is really just drowning worms for the in the interest of science. First of all, I didn't even know that was possible. I thought that they could swim or at least breathe underwater. And I also didn't know that you had such a dark side. This is very Dexter-esque. Explain yourself.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I'm like most small boys interested in playing in the backyard with my great friends, the pill bugs and the uh, worms and the uh, flies and things. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, what what you do when you're small is you put things in water and you play with them and you see what happens. So, um you know, if if my first if you could put a, a scientific title to what I was doing age five in the backyard it would be called cool on the effects of total immersion on small garden invertebrates. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's 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 how I got into into science. So just being curious, you know what things. You know, it's horrible now, really. You wouldn't very cruel. Sure. Being I, I think the worms might have died from exposure to sunlight rather than water. Actually, thinking about it.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I, th- you know, I don't want you to excuse your behavior, Henry. This is still uh <laughs> abhorrent behavior. I confess. Behavior. I confess it all. I confess <laughs> it all. Right. Nearly
1: 60, 60 years later.
0: Well, and I believe the statute of limitations has There's no statute of limitations on murder, <laughs> but I don't know if that extends to uh non-humans, but uh uh I don't no, want to test uh, it. Well,
1: you know, you you heard it here. I confess it all, Dan. I'm truly <laughs> sorry for my misdeeds.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you were able to get that off your chest. I'm sure that that's been weighing yeah, I down. I feel on so you. much
1: better now. Yeah. Right. And yeah, and, you know, I feel so much better.
0: That's good. That's good. And you know, one of the things, one of the themes in. Lord of the Rings, especially speaking of weighing down on you uh, as the One Ring that you know, carry, you know that mm-hmm. brings down Frodo throughout the course of this, and you know we're going to discuss the science of Middle Earth, which is a book that you wrote, mm-hmm. you know, uh, after the first movies, you know, the, the movie series that started in 2000, a couple maybe a decade after those were finished, you wrote this book, and you know this was I have to admit this is not the book that I expected. This is a little different and. Mm-hmm. I'm an expert on pop culture science. You know, i do a shameless plug for myself here. I do a show called Fascinating Gadgets, <laughs> Gizmos, Gear-Based Technologies. We've covered everything, but we haven't covered Middle Earth. So and most people think of only The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. But you went deep on this, Henry. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. just your references alone. You know, you've got Tolkien, Asimov, C.S. Lewis, Arthur C. Clarke, plus all the Tolkien, his whole library of books this was quite a scholarly journal uh, how did you manage to accomplish all this
1: well i think it's because of what i do in the day job uh, okay. i'm a, an editor at the scientific journal nature so it's and i was trained as a scientist so i can't help but apply the kind of lessons i learned in scientific discourse to doing pop culture stuff or or, or, or anything really so um uh I mean I used to read the Lord of the Rings every year until I was about 25 and then I kind of um you know drifted away and it was only when the Peter Jackson movies were about to happen which is gosh more than 20 years ago now can I you know. believe it I can't I know and I <laughs> uh, so I got back into I got back into um into reading the Lord of the Rings and by that time there was so much other Tolkien that was published a lot of his 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 son and literary literary executor christopher right. had basically gone into his father's notes Um, because Tolkien never threw anything away. Mm. Everything was there. (laughs) And he he produced a 12-volume set called The History of Middle-earth, which has all the drafts of The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion and several different versions and all kinds of other stuff. So I went through everything to see if I could take a kind of scientific twist, because by that time there was a kind of well there were several things i've got to say one is that i'd also my second immersion into talking coincided you know coincided with the internet the internet hadn't mm. happened before right. and i stumbled into into a fan site called the one ring dot net and um they had a q and a sessions q and a section and a lot of the um questions were kind of scientific or needed a scientific Argument like how far can elves see, and are their related to humans, and things like that. And I can't remember the actual sequence of events, but I got um, involved with the One Ring dot net as their kind of science correspondent, and I wrote a few articles about um, uh, scientific things like how how far can elves see. And using references in the Lord of the Rings, I could, and a bit of high school trigonometry, I could work it out. And um, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and so uh, I wrote a few essays for them, and I just kept thinking of more things that people hadn't asked. And lo and behold, it became book. And with the blessing of the One Ring dot net, um, uh, there uh, it was a book. And uh, the other thread at the time was at the time there was a tradition, a small sub, sub, sub genre of science writing called the science of, insert popular culture reference here. I think the grandfather of it all was uh, Lawrence Krauss's Science of Star Trek. Okay. Um, Makes sense. And then there was a very, very good book, The Science of the X Files, which was a, a very good book. And uh, do you remember The X Files? So there was a the science X-Files. of The X Files. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I love that. that was, and uh, um, and uh, somebody I know wrote The Science of Harry Potter. And I thought, crumbs, there hasn't been a science of <laughs> Tolkien. There hasn't been a science of Middle Earth. Right. Um, and so I pitched that. Um, you know, I was you know thinking about this all the time when I should have been working and you know coming up with all sorts <laughs> of ideas and so so um, p- pulling together things that I'd written for the One Ring dot net and uh, other things that I was thinking about. It very very quickly became a book and it was signed up by Cold Spring in the States and uh, Souvenir Press here and. Um, uh, I think it's now. Uh, then I did, uh, sometime later I did a small second edition, and then it's you know you can get it as an ebook. I'm right. I'm not quite sure who publishes it now. It's kind of like Samistat, but it's <laughs> it's still out there. And I wrote it twenty years ago, and uh, um, I won't say it's shifting a ton of copies, but it's uh, but thanks to you, it might shift two or three more. So uh, the science <laughs> so, of Middle Earth is there is a, another book called the Science of Middle Earth, which is quite that came out recently. That was a, a series of essays from a from French Tolkien fans translated into English, and that's not the same as what I did at all. That's quite different. So, uh, and I had nothing to do with that. Um, but that came out more recently. But, but yeah, that's 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 how it all happened. So, basically, I went into everything that Tolkien had written that had been published, even posthumously, to try and discern any glimmering of scientific. If there was any scientific aspect, I think one of the reasons that the science of Middle Earth had never been done is the popular view that Tolkien was very anti-science. Right, he was a bit of a a, a tree hugger, which mm, I suppose right. he was. But right. um, I discovered that just by close reading of stuff in plain sight, you know, that's published, that he was very keen on science fiction. He and his friend C.S. Lewis used to get, you know, um, Science fiction pulp sh- uh, shipped in from the states. They read, you know, Gernsback's amazing stories, and right. I, you know, Tolkien said he rather liked reading Asimov. So they were very, very uh, uh, familiar with science fictional tropes as they would have been around, like in the thirties. You know? right. So the, you know, the, so um, uh, they uh, were very, very um, interested in. In, in how things work like that. So they were more familiar than you might imagine from the kind of bucolic setting of The Hobbit and so on with oh, right. ray guns and spaceships and, you know, technology. Sure. um and they used to lewis and tolkien and their friends their little literary group all the inklings used to discuss a lot about how you portrayed technology and um they used to discuss the stories of hg wells and they, they used to go into it in quite in 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 depth so they really didn't know what they were talking about back in the day well the one thing you know you mentioned
0: gernsback which i think is kind of cool and it just really quickly this is a side note that, you know, Hugo Gernsback, he's from Luxembourg, which is mm, the mm. smallest country, re- well, recognized country. I've done an episode of Fascinating Nouns on Molossia, which is a micronation, which is roughly the size of a guy's yeah. backyard. Luxembourg's a little bit yeah. bigger than that. Uh, but he created science fiction in 1926 with amazing stories. And I think they called it scientif- fic- fiction. Science
1: fiction. That's that's what Gernsback called it. Yeah, he he invented a genre of science fiction when he when he published amazing stories. I think he published all sorts of other pulps as well. Um, But amazing stories is the one that's kind of become part of the folklore. Um, And uh, uh, that was, you know, one of the very, very earliest pulp science fiction magazines.
0: Right. And a great TV show, by the way. I watched it in the 80s. It was a fantastic (laughs) TV show. (laughs) Steven Spielberg Mm -hmm. is involved. But, you know, it's kind of interesting Mm -hmm. because you're talking about science fiction, and obviously, you know, Middle Earth is fantasy. But, you know, in in the book, you talk about how science fiction and fantasy, and maybe this comes from the the conversations of the Inklings, you know, this literary group, mm. but, you know, that they only differ by virtue of their props. You know, you say Gandalf's yeah. staff is yeah. really a lightsaber. The Vulcans and Klingons yeah. are just elves and orcs. And this is kind of an interesting idea because as you talk about the elves from Middle Earth, I hadn't really considered that the elves would be just a highly advanced civilization and i think it's carl sagan who said that you know every significantly advanced technology looks like magic and taking that idea as him or some or i may be misquoting it but i know yeah, that no, say it
1: was clark clark was arthur clark arthur c clark, clark. okay yeah. i knew
0: somebody I always get those yeah. two mixed up i don't mm. know anything yeah. uh, but anyway but but that idea that you know then magic you're showing magic and then you're not really explaining the technology. But as you mentioned, Tolkien had the whole idea of that technology as kind of, you know, the undergrowth of what we're seeing. Well, he- mm-hmm. reading about in the books and then later seeing on screen.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, Tolkien had a uh, – Tolkien was very religious. And his, one of the ideas he had of the elves were they were like people but before the fall. They were prelapsarian people. Got it. Um, okay. So they were people, perfect people. They were, you know, lived forever and they were very beautiful and very cultured um, and everything they did was wonderful. Um, uh, so you could imagine they'd have a, a an advanced technology that was entirely in tune with nature, um, so advanced that you couldn't tell the difference. And Tolkien gives it away a couple of times because the hobbits who are, we see every, in The Lord of the Rings, we see everything through the eyes of the Hobbits. Right, right. And that's quite important to remember. And Tolkien is perfectly explicit. He said, uh, uh, it's all there in plain sight, Um, Dan. He said that, hobbits had no understanding of anything more um any technology more complicated than a water wheel or a forge bellows <laughs> so anything more complicated than that would seem like magic to them even if it was technological right. and the other thing is there are a couple of places in the lord of the rings where the hobbits say to the elves hey can we see some of your elvish magic right, right yeah, and yeah. they say they say we don't really know what you mean by that word. We can show you what we do, but right, yeah. you know, there's no magic about it. Um, and there uh, were there were a, there were a, a few there were, there were a few things in the drafts of the Lord of the Rings that never made it to the published version, where he he shows it. So. OK, there's a bit where the where the, the the fellowship is about to leave Lothlorien, Sam Gamgee, who's actually the guy we see, he's the guy who says everything that nobody else says. He's he's the he's the everyman character. Sure. Yeah. He says what we could do with is a bit of rope. What we could do with every traveller needs is a bit of rope. Mm-hmm. The elves say, "Aha! we thought you'd need some rope. There was coils of rope in the bottom of your boat. Right. But it doesn't stop there. He says, they're made, of a, they're made of a substance called hithline, And we haven't got time to tell you about, to show you <laughs> right. how we made it. Sure, sure. But in the draft of the Lord of the Rings, they're taken to an elvish rope factory. So where they show them <laughs> how they make it. Um, and yeah. uh, so um, obviously that would spoil the, in quotes, magic if they showed mm-hmm. too much. Right. Because uh, uh, Sam Ganji wants to know because he's got a family history. There are rope makers in his family and he's interested in how they've made them. And they say, sorry, you've got to go now. Bye. Yeah, yeah. You can't see it. But um, <laughs> in the previous draft, they were showman. And yeah. um, uh, there's another thing where they're given this whey bread, lembas, this yeah. kind lembas, of, these little cakes that can keep them going for ages. Um, and... We wondered how do they actually make this stuff? The elves seem to have no visible means of support. Right. I mean, where do they grow all their grain to make this right. stuff? Yeah. And they don't have fields of grain. They just live. They just hop around from tree to tree. And you think, where do they make this? Stuff? But in the drafts of the Lord of the Rings, there we're told that they are made from wheat fields that are hallowed by the Lady of Lothlorien. You know, who's a very powerful one. And there are, so there are other things, and there's, there's a scene near the end of The Lord of the Rings where after, and it's probably because it's not in the film, in, in the films, because uh, I think, just my view, they fluff the end of The Return of the King. Um, <laughs> in the book, there's quite a long journey home, yeah. and um, there's a scene where some of the elves stand talking to each other in thought, they actually, okay. uh, and we don't know how they're doing it by some kind of technical telepathy. We we don't know how they're doing it, but um, but as Tolkien doesn't have magic, there is no magic in Middle Earth okay. because he explicitly says there isn't, um, and uh, so everything seem everything must have a technological basis. It's not necessarily possible for us to work out what it was, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, what you said, you know, any, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, and so it is to the hobbits who don't understand anything more complicated than a water wheel or a forge bellows, because Tolkien tells us that.
0: Well, it, cause it's interesting because when I would, I remember reading, cause I was really into fantasy when I was a kid and you know, there are certain, when you play like Dungeons and Dragons and things like that, you can mm-hmm. kind of adjust and tweak up or tweak down the amount of magic that shows up. You know, you can give people spells mm-hmm. or you can keep it light. Uh, you know, there's also psionics, which use their minds. So there's not real like mm-hmm. magic using the elements or anything. But when I would watch Lord of the Rings, I was always amazed at just how magic light it was. When you watch the movies, I mean, I think Gandalf comes in with his staff once with like a light beam mm-hmm. or something, and he's called a wizard and there's several wizards, but they don't really do stuff. They, they're definitely not shooting magic missiles and fireballs and, you know, stuff that, uh, you know, other fantasies were doing. So you've get, you gave me a whole new perspective on that idea that really all of The Lord of the Rings is just a science fiction story told without... You, you know kind of in a way that would make it look like there isn't any highly advanced technology but there is and it's <laughs> all hidden under the surface
1: I, I, yeah i think there's another way tolkien and lewis um was were very suspicious of kind of gizmos mcguffins <laughs> okay. uh think things that yeah. would get you from a to b you know yeah. hyperspace that sort of thing so they were very critical in one of their in it, Tolkien couched it in a story called the Motion Club Papers, which was never published. Okay. Um, but it was basically a kind of thinly disguised send-up of himself and his, and and Lewis and the other inklings. And in this, uh, the the characters are are talking about H.G. Wells, uh, and they're talking about the first men in the moon, mm-hmm. and. The scientist protagonist in that story is a man called Cavour, and he invents an anti gravity material called Cavorite. It's okay. a sort of mineral that confers anti gravity properties. And uh, Tolkien and Lewis thought this was fundamentally dishonest. Okay. Why sort of go put some. If you don't, if you don't really go into the science of it, why do this gobbledygook? Why not just wave a wand and say, "Aha, you can fly to the moon." <laughs> and then, okay, you might be using cavil right, but you see, he, he, they thought those sort, of, they thought that was dishonest and unnecessary. So, um, uh, so, so, what I was doing in the science of Middle Earth was to try and find the cavil that they'd edited out. Um, <laughs> right cuz it's got to still be there. I mean, you know, I, first of all, I,
0: you got we got to discuss the elephant in the room here. You know, my other podcast is mm-hmm. called Gadgets, Gizmos and Gear-based Technologies and I feel like Tolkien would not like that title at all, uh given his, you know, distaste for gizmos in general. Uh but also, you know, th- this idea that you're taking something and making up. You know, it's, uh, what's the name of the stuff that fires? Uh, you know, that powers the Star Trek. It's like dilithium crystals or something like that. Uh,
1: dilithium crystals. Yeah. Right.
0: So, so that idea. That's right. That's cavalry. That's cabal right right. I
1: mean, this is a, yeah,
0: yeah. Just making so making up an i you know an idea concept a, a, an invention that does the thing is is more dishonest than just waving your wand and having it happen. That I mean, that's an interesting perspective. Yeah.
1: But I suppose if you've got Star Trek and you've got an engineer and you've got an engineering department, you have to have something for them to engineer. <laughs> right, right. Um, you had to say the so, machine goes. So, so, so <laughs> yeah. you come up with some sort of gobbledygook that sounds <laughs> vaguely scientific and, uh, yeah. and that does it.
0: I believe the proper term is techno babble, Henry, I believe. It's not gobbledygook. Yeah. That's a totally different yeah.
1: language. Oh well, techno babble. I stand correct. Right, right, And and it sounds it's it sounds kind of scientific, but it right. isn't really. They've just made up a word. Yeah. Um, and uh, Arthur C. Clarke, in a way, was a bit like Tolkien in that he distrusted. The whole concept of hyperspace, you know, warp drives and all that, because he said there's no scientific way this could happen. And he said that the only purpose of hyperspace is to get the crew of the Enterprise or whichever ship Mm -hmm. from point A to point B. In time, he said, for the next exciting episode. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Clark <laughs> would write uh, fiction in which hyperspace didn't happen, and you get all sorts of other interesting anomalies like time dilation and traveling very fast, but not faster than light, um, which were interesting in their own way and actually posed more challenges to the writer for you know plotting and uh how do you actually put vast distances and vast times into a story where you're trying to keep a pace of adventure on a human scale because when you think about it the kind of space opera with hyperspace and hey i love it and you love it we all love it with hyperspace are basically westerns they're basically westerns set in space absolutely and that's uh, that that's you know back to the amazing uh, amazing stories and and kind of science and fiction science fiction before like 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 the steam powered robot of the prairie you know the right. pre- steampunk gold- in there yeah. yeah so uh, all these things are kind of cowboys in, in space and star wars um love star wars star wars is marvelous uh, and um uh, I love all the spin-offs. Love the Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Mandalorian—that's pure western. Absolutely. You know, the Mandalorian Absolutely. comes to the town, and there's the the marshal of the town saying, "We got some bad guys coming into town. Can you deal with them?" I mean, it's just high noon. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it, Absolutely. Uh, uh, it's uh, and, uh, and I have to say, I love it. You know, me and my daughter, who I'd say is 23, and you know, we both love all this stuff. <laughs> sure. And uh, but we both we both realise the conceit. It's just the Virginian or Mm -hmm. you know the high chaparral or something but you know stuff that i used to watch when i was a kid but it's just marvelous stuff i mean these are old tropes and they never grow stale i mean they're just in new clothes now you use you know um, laser blasters instead of six guns Uh, but um it's just as as we said earlier on it's just the you know uh, lightsabers and magic wands. only the props vary the plots are the same
0: well, I want to jump in here really quickly because my question, you know, it seems weird to me that that Arthur C. Clarke would not like the idea of these. You know, it seems like he was kind of a cynic for television tropes. Right. I mean, you kind of, ha- you know, mm-hmm. to say you don't like hyperdrive because it have to be, you have to be ready for the adventure next week. That's kind of the form. Unfortunately, that's a formula of television. And I get the mm-hmm. highfalutin, yeah. you know, eager, you know, like, oh, well, this isn't real storytelling. I'll t- I'll show you real storytelling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I get that. But I mean, in its sense. I don't know. Like the hyperdrive doesn't ma- you know, it's kind of what you're saying about yeah. the Mandalorian and all it's just a Western. They're just tropes. There's just everything is a is a a way to tell a story. It's just what tools <laughs> and what little <laughs> bits, you know, what pieces of a story do you use to puzzle together your specific story. But I yeah. don't think there's anything inherently yeah. wrong with it.
1: No, I mean I think it's a question of taste and a question sure, of, of challenges you set yourself. Uh so um I, I think that well. Take Asimov, I mean, it's a long time since I read Asimov. Asimov doesn't have any props at all. If you go back and read the Foundation trilogy or any of the robot stories, it's all entirely plot-driven. The characters are utterly wooden. There is no <laughs> scenery. It's, it's all talk. It's all talky talk. It's all conversation. Um, and there are one or two good stories where there is scenery, like Nightfall. Sure. <laughs> um, but 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 yeah. most of it, yeah. most yeah. of it is is just chat and plot. Right. It's very plot driven, mm. and you know he could turn a good mystery story because he could do plot. Um, with Asimov, but um, so some people were better than others. Now Arthur C. Clarke wanted to keep science fiction within the realm of possible or foreseeable science. So he said, well, we'll never travel faster than light because we can't. So let's try, we have to do our science fiction in a universe where, you know, the distances are really big and we travel slower than light. And I have seen science fiction by the same authors. You know, in some novels they use hyperspace, in some novels they don't use hyperspace. Um, uh, so it's a question of world building and setting out the parameters of the little toy universe that you're working in before you start. Um, and you're right; there's there's nothing wrong with doing doing it any way you any way you please. You're you've got to, in the end, you're trying to tell a story. You're trying to tell a good story. And I think one of the reasons that um, that Clark and Lewis didn't like cavilrite or techno babble was they thought it got in the way of the story.
0: Okay, um, That's
1: fair. The interesting thing is how your protagonists get to the moon. No, the interesting thing is that your protagonists get to right. the moon rather than how they got there. Right. Because um, you're not really interested in how they got there. You wanted you want to know the adventures that they had once they got to the moon. Right. But in
0: what you know when you talk about Star Wars, one of the cool things is that the Millennium Falcon, which has a hyperdrive. I think for all mm-hmm. of the Empire Strikes Back, it's on the Fritz. So you yeah. so like he you know it can go faster than light or whatever mm-hmm. they're doing. Mm-hmm. And you know, but then they have to work around it. They have to get to the moon, mm-hmm. but now instead of being able to fly to the moon, they gotta walk to the moon. You know? And that's yeah. Yeah. So, but that's so that's kind of a fun way to play with that, I think.
1: Well, I think the Millennium Falcon is very much a projection of Han Solo. I mean, it's kind <laughs> of <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> uh, everything everything is uh. everything is a bit you know rigged up in a rather sure. dodgy way at the last minute and <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh you know he yeah. he won this ship in a bet I yeah. think of Lando Calrissian or someone yeah, that's or somewhere. right he won this ship in a card game and this ship you know it had obviously been owned by he had been through the hands of several not very careful owners and and <laughs> yeah. and it had had a few you know it was like it was like some souped up jalopy exactly. from the 50s Definitely. that yeah that you that you'd have to spend all your weekends underneath making sure the oil didn't leak out <laughs> right. and, yeah. uh, and yeah. it wasn't a, a nice t- t- and, and that was part of the fun of it Definitely. because you knew they were you knew they were you know flying across the galaxy in this old heap with this junk heap and and so that makes you cheer even more when it out flies the super duper technologically perfect you know darth vader and his 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 awful droids or whatever right.
0: now now in fairness though in fairness to the millennium falcon it was the fastest ship in the galaxy it was that souped well, up it, jalopy with the nitrous it, it, that it, wasn't quite attached properly it could you know do
1: the the gelangian run in less than so many parsecs it's, yeah i know right. could do that. but that was <laughs> that was the skill of the pilot you see that was sure. han solo's Calling card that he was the <laughs> fastest pilot, even in this souped up jalopy, right? Because right, right. he made a few special modifications to it, no doubt, that <laughs> made it, you know, right. get a bit of extra, extra warmth, yeah. Um, but that's why, so I mean, I read a criticism when The Phantom Menace came out and you know, it bombed, and for all sorts of reasons, it wasn't a critical success, um. And a lot of it was to do with the very well. There was Jar Jar Binks, but let's forget about Jar Jar Binks, shall we? Let's draw yeah, a veil yeah. over Jar Jar Binks. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, but there was a lot about the Trade Federation and the sort of uh, the whole political situation. And one critic said, "But we don't want to be these people. We, us kids, we just want to be Han Solo." Mm-hmm, and you right. go back to the to the original, you know, Star Wars, you know, A New Hope, and it's just pure, unadulterated westerns and that's what we like the adventures are very clear to see they're good guys and bad guys and there's the the young novice who's called harry potter sorry luke skywalker um yeah and and he's (laughs) being guided by the sage um gandalf obi-wan kenobi albus dumbledore i mean they're they're all the same they're the same you know archetype yeah. um you know so luke could be frodo you know uh or bilbo i mean they're the they're the sort of every man who basically what we the audience can identify with who gets thrown into an adventure without really meaning to and has to contend with all these new fantastic things and there and and come good and through his own grit and determination come through using his own innate Uh, humanity rather than relying on huge battalions of orcs or spaceships or whatever.
0: Well, I will, you know, I'm going to blow your mind here. You know, I did a whole episode on symbology in movies uh, with Robert Sullivan IV and that guy, Mm -hmm. the Merlin... Uh fro uh uh yeah. Dumbledore. That character's called the Hermes Trismagentes. That's the technical yeah. term th- <laughs> for the, the yeah. old
1: wisen uh well, Obi- it's Mer- One. It's, that's it's Merlin and Ki- Merlin and the young King Arthur, mm-hmm. isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, the sword and the stone and all that. All yeah. the way back to there. Uh but so
0: mm-hmm. I know to. let is let's let's take Merlin. Let's not get too far down the Star Wars path. Let's let's go the Merlin path. Let's mm-hmm. talk about Uh, Middle Earth, because I want to talk about Mm -hmm. the elves a little bit, because you really shifted my perspective on this. I mean, I loved looking at it like this because I hadn't really thought about it. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned is so there's two things with the elves. They have biological capabilities that are different Mm -hmm. and advanced and they have technological capabilities, the stuff that kind of looks like magic. And one of the things that you said that I thought was interesting is that They are really, you know, they're a race that's been around a long time. They they've become one with, you know, one with nature. They have this advanced technology. They can see things differently. Literally, their eyes are significantly Mm -hmm. better. Uh, they've got a technology. They understand nature in a way that, as you mentioned, the hobbits—they uh, really paint hobbits as these rubes, these rural rubes that like don't <laughs> know their <laughs> you know their elbow from a hole in the ground. Uh, so uh, when you have that type of perspective, this advanced perspective, it changes everything about how they view the world, and they <laughs> see it <laughs> so very differently than human beings or anyone else could. And that really explains why, in some ways, they're so aloof in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah books, trilogy, the hobbit, everything that in the whole Middle Earth world because that always surprised me because I was thinking to myself like these guys are, they're so advanced and they seem, you know, willing to do good but they're very hands off and oh, you yeah. know, I, I, so it's that, that, that aloof quality I think is kind of explained when you look at it from that perspective I think
1: Yeah, there's several things to unpack here. Okay. Um, one is that elves live for a very, very long time right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I yeah. mean, they are effect- they are effectively immortal, and there are several times in um, Tolkien's writings um, where elves encounter human beings, and they're very, very sad that you know human beings to them are like pets because they just die so quickly. You get to know them, and you have a friendship, and then they just die. They're like vampires um, because, except
0: without the death and blood sucking.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah. So, so one of the reasons they're aloof is because, uh, they don't, uh, they, they, they are, they're very fond of human beings, but pity them because, uh, uh, the, the human beings just die and they go, they go, no, not they go when they die. They don't know where they go. Right. They, they just disappear. Yeah. Right. right. Um, elves do have an afterlife. They go to the blessed realm and, uh, um, and, uh, but humans don't – nobody knows where the humans go. So death is a gift that's given to humans, uh, and uh, uh, humans become to res, come to resent it. And in, in the end, elves come to envy it because they have to endure all the ages of the world and see everything pass away.
0: And I want to pause you one more quickly because we're going to talk about Lambus. And what's interesting – I don't mm-hmm. want to get into that because I have a whole thing I wanted to ask you about that. But mm-hmm. it's interesting because they talk about they're afraid to give away this very special bread that um, – because they don't want humans to get a taste of what immortality feels like, because it will mm-hmm. shift their perspective. Mm-hmm. Even in their food, you know, it's all ingrained yeah. in in just living longer.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's exactly that's exactly right. Because um, uh, and this ties into all sorts of things, like the effects that the ring has on yeah. you. It, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. 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 It, 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 it confers power in accordance with the wearer. Yeah. So. When Sam gets the ring briefly, when he, he envisionizes Mordor the size of a very large garden. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, when uh, Frodo offers the ring to Galadriel, who's a very powerful elf, and to Gandalf, who's an altogether more powerful order of being they say do not tempt me with it because you'd create an absolute monster right because the ring would take you over and that would completely ruin everything yeah so it's okay for you frodo to carry the ring because it might screw you up but you're not going to you know change the whole order of <laughs> right, creation right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah that's um, fair it's a fair argument <laughs> um but also you know you see that uh because if you could live for centuries or millennia you could do things that humans can't do like cultivate trees as if they were crops Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that you see with the elves is that they they, in Lothlorien uh, they cultivate this incredible mallorn tree this huge beautiful tree which is obviously a gigantic beech tree but they've bred it They've bred this tree. Now, we're not very good at breeding forest trees because we don't live long enough to do it. You know, you plant an oak tree and your grandchildren might see it bloom. You can, you can plant softwood trees and they'll grow up in 10, 20 years. And, you know, it's a very long view for a cash crop. But if you live for a long time, you can really modify nature and live to see the results and experiment with it.
0: And I will say, you know, there's a famous saying, I don't mean to cut you off, there's a famous saying that, you know, it is, uh, you know, a great man will plant trees That he that his grandchildren will get to enjoy the shade of I'm butchering that Mm, sentence. But the idea is that humans have to look generations in advance to their children, their children's children. And if you're an elf and you can you are those generations, it's a very different perspective, as I was
1: saying before. Well, it's exactly, in the whole the whole business of history. Like at, var- right. at various times in the Lord of the Rings, they're talking about when Sauron was first de- was defeated at the Last Alliance, and they're talking about that. But at the Lord of the Rings, that happened three and a half thousand years ago, <laughs> and Elrond says, "I remember it. I was there." <laughs> yeah, right.
0: And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You go, yeah. whoa. It'd be like I saw the I saw the crucifixion of Jesus when I was a thousand years old, right? I mean, so. that's why. So why didn't you ask me about it? Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh,
1: so, so why, why are you um, having all these myths and legends? You can ask me. Right. So that's another reason why they're kind of backwards in coming forwards. And there's another thing that was pointed out by a great Tolkien scholar, admire greatly, Professor Tom Shippey, who said. In the early part of the leg the Tolkien legendarium in the Silmarillion, mm-hmm. the elves were very active. They had agency. Yeah. And Tolkien writes, In the Silmarillion, you know, you know, human beings are mentioned hardly ever and hobbits not at all. It's all about elves. Interesting. But by the okay. time you get to the, you know, f- which is 6,000 years later at the end of the Third Age, which is where the Lord of the Rings takes place, the elves are retreating. Mm -hmm. They retreat into the background. So you don't see many elves fighting in the Lord of the Rings. Got it. So in, in the film you do, now, there's a thing in the film where that great battle of Helm's Deep, which was which if you compare it with Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 3, the medieval dead is shot <laughs> for shot exactly the same. Um, yeah. You get a load of elves coming to Helm's Deep uh, and say, we once fought and died with you are going to do again. Yeah. But that doesn't happen in the book in the book it's a, it's it's some of it's aragorn's cousins and friends the other rangers right yeah they're yeah, humans yeah. they turn up to help right. so uh, in in the book the elves basically stand back and advise elrond galadriel they stand back and advise on um, the proceedings now sometimes they do action off stage so in the hobbit we learn that while Bilbo and the dwarves were messing around with the Lonely Mountain, Gandalf and Galadriel went to Dol Guldur, the the stronghold of Sauron in Mirkwood, and Galadriel threw down its towers and laid bare its pits. Mm -hmm. And that's just in a little marginal note. So you kind of miss over it. You don't don't realise it. In the film of The Hobbit, they had to show that. So, you know... I remember Kate, Kate Blanchett said basically in a, in a comic con thing yeah I had to lose my elven shit in that one and they said what was it like your elven shit she said well kind of all sparkly and uh, so so they had to actually show you know you can't you can't tell yeah. you have to show yeah right um right. but um overall that um the elves at the end of the third age don't do very much they just very nostalgic they keep they keep the records. They keep the relics, but overall, they're mostly fading. They're going into the West, never to return. Right, um, uh, and that's what they're going to do once Aragorn has been crowned. The Elves said, "Our our work here is done." So, yeah. you know, bye.
0: Well, and it's interesting because the other theme here, right? So, so the Elves have a, a essentially an extraordinarily long life. If they are, you're saying they're mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. immortal. And there's this whole mm-hmm. kind of, you know, in in the, in the book, in your book, and in Middle Earth, you kind of analyze. I don't know if you, you don't really say this outright, but you're kind of looking at the difference between. "Quote unquote naturally elongated life," whereas the elves have a natural long life. If you eat their mm-hmm. nutrition, their bread, you your life yep. might be extended. You know, based on whatever you mm-hmm. know the nutrition that's in the food, mm-hmm. and the artificial extending of one's life, like through the One Ring, where you have Bilbo mm-hmm. who's mm-hmm. suddenly living much longer than he's supposed to, and Gollum. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gollum lives so long that yeah. he's warped yeah. and twisted into an entirely different type of creature. And mm-hmm. there is that difference mm-hmm. where it's you know you could say it's good versus evil, and they kind of paint that in the in the the lord of the rings book but in reality you could mm. say that someone naturally extending their life is very different than someone artificially extending their life through medical <sighs> procedures or you know if someone lives 30 40 50 years longer than a human being is supposed to live it's not good for the psyche <sighs> right we are natural and have That's, have mm. cycles that we're supposed to follow we're supposed to live and die in 80 to 100 years not 250 years although someone argue that but i like what you did in the book when you kind of you kind of look at both of those things
1: yeah, it's also something I didn't do, but uh, Tolkien riffs on it extensively, mm. is that repeatedly in his many stories and legends, human beings become jealous of the immortality of the elves right, yeah. and try to seek, as you say, artificial ways to prolong their lives. Mm. And all they do is succeed in shortening them. Right, yeah, yeah. Because human, uh, so uh, there the, 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 the is that. But the thing about the One Ring, that was one thing I didn't solve in the, you know, spoiler alert, in the science right. of Middle-Earth, <laughs> I couldn't right. work out how it worked. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, and some things you just have to admit that you can't, and there are all sorts of reasons, I think, why you can't solve the One Ring, how, how it actually works. Mm-hmm. But one of the things Tom Shippey said, one of the great things about the One Ring is it's very um, it's very ambiguous. Mm-hmm. I mean, in one sense, it's a kind of, it's a device, it's a psychic amplifier, he called mm-hmm. it, which amplifies all the bad bits of your personality. Um but, um, but then on the other hand, you bring to the ring your own personality, as we've, right. you know, we've talked about. Um, so um, is the ring of itself evil or is evil brought to it? Um, and the whole nature of evil um, is, is, is a rift that um, is not far below the surface. There's two basic kinds. Is evil an actual force in the world or is it simply the absence of good? And um, that dichotomy is never actually resolved in in the book. Now, some very interesting characters are the ringwraiths. Yeah. You know, these people who were once men who were enslaved to the nine rings. And they are basically a nothingness clothed in robes there's nothing there they are complete they're an absence so it's not like that they're evil they're complete absence they're a nullity they're a no spec they're a nullity they're an absence of good like their humanity's um, been stripped away and sucked away everything, everything is they are null there's nothing there's literally nothing there underneath the clothes um they're kind of ghost figures so that uh so but what does that actually mean does that mean that they are have been turned from a good Person to an evil person, or is it just been all oh, their goodness has been stripped away and there's nothing there at all, um, except some motivating force, uh, you know, the being tied to Sauron. Uh, so it's very, very hard to um, hard to understand. There's another thing that is part of that is that all the good guys in the Lord of the Rings fight face to face. They have swords and arrows and spears, and they yeah. actually get stuck in. Even Gandalf does yeah. it. Uh, and But the bad guys, Saruman and Sauron, they don't come to the battle. They have all their minions, right. the orcs and the trolls, do it for them. And the minions always get it wrong they always <laughs> misinterpret the orders yeah, yeah. like there's it, it, it's uh you know the saruman's Orcs kidnap the wrong hobbits they kidnap right. mary and right, pippin yeah. rather than thinking they're frodo and sam um and you know they they refuse to believe that two little hobbits unarmed could sneak into mordor in tolkien's was that has not entered saron's darkest dreams um, and tolkien was drawing directly from his experience in the trenches in World War One, hmm. um, you know, where the, the the generals would well, you know, he would, they were often ha- fighting hand to hand in in the in the trenches, right, yeah. but the generals who governed the war were utterly incompetent and you know they they would say well we're going to barrage the German trenches for three days before you go over the top and they went over the top and found that nothing had been barraged and they'd been barraging the wrong trenches and so <laughs> right, he, yeah he uh, he he got this directly from his experiences in the war mm-hmm. so another thing Tom Shippey I know I quote Tom Shippey a lot I'd rather rhyme he says that the Lord of the Rings is very much a war book Mm. But it's war at a time of change, right. such as yeah. before the First World War. Before the First World War, people were still in the, in hand-to-hand combat or in battle formation. But the First World War was one of the first, was I think maybe there were early ones like the Burr War, the Franco-Prussian War, that actually had long-range weapons, right. you know, huge we- huge cannons that could fire a shell the size of a car for 15 miles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So all you, all you do is you press a button, bang and somebody you've never met gets killed yeah. you don't even look him in the eye yeah, right. um and um and so basically war is won or lost in Tolkien's world you know the the war on the bad bad guy side is basically a matter of bureaucracy mm. and and administration mm. um, right. I mean Aragorn is going to be the king if he was like Sauron he'd stay in Minas Tirith and send everyone else off to war yeah. but he doesn't he's leading the fight himself yeah. um and tolkien said well if you're going to go and fight a war at least actually see your enemy before you kill them right because um, um, he and you know he lived at the time he was a young soldier at the time of the first tank battles mm-hmm. uh, and uh uh he would have seen you know somebody schooled in medieval literature would have seen such things as actually quite obscene yes. uh and that in in that that informed his early fiction when he um, he fought in the Battle of the Somme and was invalided out with trench fever, which was carried by lice. Yeah. And the first thing he did was he wrote a story called The Fall of Gondolin, which eventually was in part of the Silmarillion. And in the early version, this is why I went back to the all the Tolkien I could get hold right. of, um, that the Gondolin is this beautiful, beautiful elvish city, and it's destroyed by the evil powers with dragons but the dragons are metal beasts with articulating metal plates that breathe fire. They're not organic at all. They're right. like tanks. Got it. They're like if a medieval knight had seen a tank, what would they have made of it? Right. It would be like a metal uh, machine, organic thing, breathing fire. So it was only with the rewriting and rewriting and rewriting that the dragons became more biological, more the way we would imagine dragons. So that was Tolkien's reaction as a young soldier, immediately coming out of the the trenches, was to use his own knowledge of ancient mythology and write a version of the First World War cast in that mould. Wow! Um, and that's where everything came from. That's fa- I don't think I realized
0: that. Uh, that is that is mm. fascinating, and it makes a lot of sense because. You know, let's. I, I want to talk about the lembus really quickly, uh, because mm-hmm. we, you know mentioned mm-hmm. before, and I did a whole episode on army rations and the evolution mm-hmm. of how you know mm-hmm. portable food, and in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. lembus must get some. You know, it must draw somewhere on that army food from World War One, and what what I like about it is that you have this food that can sustain someone for a very long time, and when you look at the science of that, you know, I was a couple years ago I heard about this uh, this drink. It's called Soylent. And it's obviously named after mm. Soylent Green. That's the that's, the, that's the joke. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it is actually mm. a, a highly nutritious drink that can literally replace meals. So you can live off if you drink mm. five, mm. you know, five of these a day. You could live off it. I you know I think scientifically indefinitely and not the way that you know in in my episode about army rations what you learn is that they're they're you can have food last a long time but it's not highly nutritious you really shouldn't live off of it no. off no. army rations for a long period mm. of time but this idea that you could just eat elven bread for the rest of your life mm-hmm. it may not be ideal but you would live and, and you would have a nutritious you know meal that mm. that whole idea is
1: really interesting to me that is interesting, and one thing you uh, one thing it reminded me of as you were as you were setting that up was things like uh, rations that people have in space in spacecraft, yeah, yeah. um, astronaut ice cream, which is <laughs> stuff
0: like that. Yeah, yeah and uh, <laughs> yeah. you
1: know, uh, it's highly concentrated. But the first thing when you introduce Lembas, um, when they introduce it in the book, the dwarf Gimli says, oh, this must be like cram." Uh-huh our waybread that we have for very long journeys. And the dwarves are no slouches. They would have been, they're very tough, and they would have had whey bread. It might not have been tasted very nice, or it was probably very crunchy, uh, and, uh, the job and would now. have kept you going on. It gets the job done. But the the Lembas gets the job done, but more beautifully, more perfectly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. more elegantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're perfectly baked, you know, they're, you know, biscuit colour, and... Um, and and as you say, they don't give them out. They don't give them out to everyone. They're very, very lucky to have them because um, they have the favour of Galadriel with, and she wants them to succeed. And so she gives people various gifts in accordance with their stature. And uh, um, But they give everyone this waybread. bread. And even so... As you say, it's not perfect because even the company get rather bored with it after. a. I mean, right. Sam, now I can't remember now if it's in the film or the book, but Sam says he'd rather have a good home cooked meal, you know, yeah. <laughs> occasionally rather, you know, the way bread, it keeps you going, but it doesn't really satisfy Um so it is like army rations or navy rations, you know, sure. ships, biscuit, and
0: yeah. you know, hardtack and all that for <laughs> Yeah. For, for, so, yeah, I found that really yeah. interesting. The other thing that I, you know, as I mentioned, I've done a lot of pop culture science and, and I've, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of different explanations for things. You know, maybe, you know, maybe we'll do a little, uh, if I can talk you into it, maybe we'll do a little collaboration and yeah. we'll get the one ring, you know, uh, you can join our crew. We'll get the one ring down in an episode. Uh, but, but until, oh, that'd be That'd, great. Be, that'd yeah. be fun to do uh but one yeah. thing that was in your book that i had never heard of before was the uh i'm, I'm gonna say this incorrectly uh the, the pala the palantiri the far seeing stones
1: palantiri yes. uh,
0: and, and you, yeah and you talk about you know t- quantum entanglement is something we've talked about before and that makes a lot of sense so basically there's stones that are like communication stones you can look into one and see out of the other you know uh, so it's like a, a network of you know v- let's say, video phones, except they're, they're rocks, mm-hmm. right? That's basically the idea mm-hmm. behind it. Yeah. But one of the things that you talk about as an explanation is lithium neobate, uh, where if yeah. you shine a photon into... So lithium neobate is actual an actual chemical compound. It's a real, real substance, substance, yeah. And if you shine a photon at a piece of it, two entangled photons emerge from that. That's That mm. sounds like magic, Henry. I've never heard that well, before, uh, and that's it, it, wild. Well... Uh,
1: I have to say, um, I probably got some of the quantum stuff wrong because I'm not a physicist. And, no, uh, come on, man. My, my my friend, my friend Brian Clegg. Uh, Brian Clegg is a is a is a friend of mine. He's a science writer. He said, "Oh, the, you know, it doesn't quite work like that." But um, <laughs> oh, when I, I I wrote that, you know, and I had some co- colleagues of mine at Nature. We had the Tolkien Technology Working Group. Okay. You know, we used to sure. look at this stuff and see if. If, you know, what are the Silmarils made of? What are these Palantiri made of? And, you know, Feanor, the greatest of the elves, made them. And they were basically one seeing stone, but they're like quantumly entangled seeing stones. And I think I took a great deal of (laughs) liberties with the physics um, because um, you can't actually see something far away using quantum entanglement. Right. But I can get round that because the Palantiri only show you certain things and some things may be true and some things may not be true. He says, and, you know, uh, Galadriel's mirror is a similar kind of device. And she said they're not, you know, You can look in the mirror, but it's not a really good guide to deeds. Right. You shouldn't base your decisions on what you see because it may show you things that have been or things that are or things that may come. Right. But we don't know yet. Um, So I think... Poetically, there's a kind of resonance there with the kind of uncertainty of quantum mechanics. You're right. never quite sure what you're going to see when you look in the seeing stones. Like
0: a like a potential quantum outcome. You could see several different outcomes that are all potential uh, prob- probabilistic outcomes when you look through it. Which is interesting. Yes,
1: and it also depends a great deal on the intellect and psychic power this isn't scientific at all. Of the <laughs> user, like like um, Sauron uses his seeing stones to show things that he wants the recipient to see. Got it. Okay. Um, like he, he shows Denethor, the steward of Gondor, the might of his of Sauron's armies, yeah. and it just gets and Denethor becomes despairing. He says he's not going to win. It's basically like sowing disinformation on Facebook right. or whatever. <laughs> sure, sure. He, he just it, and. Um, But Sauron can also be deceived because when the hobbit Peregrine looks in a seeing stone and is connected briefly to Sauron, Sauron thinks it's Frodo. Okay. Because Sauron sees what he wants to see. Right. Because, you know, uh, so that actually buys the Fellowship some time because it distracts distracts Sauron's eye from Frodo and Sam. So it's... uh, it's a kind of, so so it's a bit like Mary and Pippin were kind of useful decoys. Sure.
0: Well, then let me ask. So, so what about the lithium neobate? Is that true? If you shine a photon mm. in, did, oh yeah, that really happens. Okay. So that yeah, wasn't made that, up. That, that you, that really I happens, thought yeah. you made that up. Nope, for a nope, that, Cause that's crazy. Nope, I'd never heard nope, that before.
1: That's real no, no, neither had I until I researched it when I was looking for, looking for substances that had properties that could be entangled. Sure. So, um, and, uh, so there were some lithium neobate exists. There are some substances uh, that I had that were really harder than diamond that um I can't quite remember now. But um Uh y- y- were, y- y- were, sulfur, don't I think, is could. what you have on I oh, don't know that that exists oh, okay. um that's mithril um right. but there was something uh, c- c- boron nitride or something which is you know much harder than diamond, which would be a shell okay. in which the lithium neobate would Got be it. um no the atrium itri- it- silver was mithril, this magical silvery metal, Right. yeah that's right um which that um And I mean I wrote this 20 years ago there are probably other things now that are also very hard when you hit them or ductile when you mold them you know they have a kind of silly putty type uh, 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 physical properties
0: I think there are lots now especially with a lot of um, metamaterials where they have that like you said the silly putty type of idea where you know slowly moving it it's very malleable but sudden strikes a lot of this is used in um, bulletproof advanced highly advanced bulletproof and ballistics uh, where you hit it hard, and then it it goes, you know, the it it's becomes very difficult yeah. to to penetrate as well.
1: When when I was when I was writing it, I got in touch with a Tolkien fan who was also a biker, okay. and she told she told me about motorcycle wear that is exactly like this. That when you wear that when you wear it, it's perfectly malleable. But if you're thrown off your yeah. bike onto a road, it becomes instantly like armor yeah. and protects yeah. you. Um, so, so uh, yeah. So, so these things, you know, do exist and uh, um, uh, those properties do exist. Uh, and one of the, you know, speaking of properties that exist, one of
0: the things that, you know, f- closing up here, uh, I want to talk about, you know, your explanation of uh, dragons, which I thought was really interesting, where, you know, you talk about, you know, fire breathing. The flying is a little is tricky because, you know. Uh, has to do with appendages all you know basically all creatures on earth are from a very similar template and there aren't a lot mm-hmm. of mammals yeah. actually any that would have six limbs you could have insects that have six limbs that's right but you know with mm-hmm. humans so mm-hmm. even with bats their arms are what turn into the, the the wings um they still have legs but they don't have like a second set of arms and wings um yeah uh, but but as far as the fire breathing I thought you kind of had a really clever solve to this, which is basically that they would, you know, like the bombardier beetle, they would synthesize some kind mm. of flammable, you know, uh, s- substance that would come out of their salivary glands in their mouth, and that they could ignite
1: with their teeth.
0: I think, or something like this. Is that how it mm. works? Yeah.
1: Well, well, this comes to uh, some experience I had as a brief time as a school chemistry right. teacher, and I, like it already. Uh, um, I had to handle. Uh, a substance called diethyl ether known as ether and if you've heard of ether it used to be used as an anesthetic yep, right. back in the early days of anesthesia so it makes you all drowsy and but the problem the reason that they don't use ether anymore it is unbelievably flammable yep, right. <laughs> i mean if you have an if you spill ether and it it flows really quickly so if you spill ether and it's a light you just can't keep yeah. up with it and it um it is so flammable. You don't even have to light it. You just have to pass it across some suitable surface, Jeez. um a bit like you know striking an old-fashioned match. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that you know, do you remember those where you could strike them on any surface yeah, yeah, rather yeah. than on people the, who do it on their say, chin? You talking about on, westerns? They would do it under their chin yeah. or on their boot and stuff yeah, like exactly that on their on their <laughs> chin. Yeah, exactly <laughs> on their boot. So, so, you know, these old-fashioned matches. So, if you pass, if you just blow a stream of ether across some surface, it will ignite. Okay, I mean, even at quite low temperatures. So I thought, "Mm," as having an experience as a school chemistry teacher for a while, having to handle this lethal stuff um, and it burns anything it touches, um, all you need to do is have some modified salivary gland arrangement in the dragon's mouth and it squirts the ether as a liquid across the teeth and that would be enough to ignite it into a Flame that could be broadcast very, very far, very quickly, and burn anything on contact. So the only and it's very, very. Oh gosh, would we get into trouble? It's very, very easy to make. <laughs> okay. um, we, don't, we won't give the recipe out, but well, yeah, very easy to make. No. yeah. but it's very easy to make. You basically you have sulfuric acid and you. you oh it's very easy to make you you have to it's jolly good i can't quite remember it but it's extremely easy to make you have to it's it's in a particular way you react alcohol with sulfuric acid it's it's these are two substances that are very common in laboratories and in nature Nature,
0: right you could have microbes do this you could have you know your body yeah yeah. so so
1: so you know you've so you'd have um uh, you 'd have a gland where maybe there's some, in the dragon where some microbes are busy synthesizing ether by, by, by mixing alcohol and sulfuric acid. The only problem is that there was a byproduct which are sulfates, and sulfate salts are very insoluble. They precipitate out mm. and will probably clog up all their salivary glands, and I, I couldn't really work out how to do that. But, you know, the bombardier beetle uses really complicated stuff like hydroxyquinone and all sorts of complicated things. Dragonfire actually is much easier to do. Um, I mean, nothing we knew actually breathes fire like that, but I thought it would be quite easy to do. And there's another thing about dragons. Which the ether is is good for. Um, and this, uh, the dragons are very, as we know from Smaug, and uh, there's another dragon called Glauron in the Silmarillion. You don't want to talk to dragons because they will cast a spell on you right. they will freeze you into immobility yeah. and basically they're whiffing you with a bit of their, <laughs> their breath yeah it. they're just anesthetizing yeah. <laughs> you so um i thought that was a nice byproduct you know if they breathe it out slowly so it doesn't ignite yeah. they can anesthetize you and lull you and uh, cast a spell on right. you. right that's a great solve and, and i will tell you i was known
0: you know I, I probably should admit this but i was known as a great gleaker and gleeking is where Mm -hmm. you can basically squeeze your salivary glands and shoot saliva out of your mouth. It's not Ah. spitting, but you can... (laughs) I'm fantastic at it. I am. I I went to a a class reunion recently, and I was asked to display, and I I still got it, Henry. Uh, I still got it. So you could easily, (laughs) if I can do it, a dragon can do this and that's how you squirt if my if my salivary glands could produce ethyl what is it uh hold on i gotta hear uh b- b- diethyl ether, ether. ether if i could do that i'd be fire breathing easily yeah you'd
1: be um you'd be in the x, x- Man, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
1: which would be really cool um there was a there was a chapter in the science of middle earth that i actually deleted because it was too dangerous, <laughs> I gave a recipe for giving the bomb that Saruman used to blow up Helm's oh, Deep. God. So we went probably good that. idea. That's another thing I learned as a school chemistry yeah. teacher. So uh, <laughs> yeah, you want, God, yeah, you got, you got um, a little. T- I made the most amazing explosives.
0: For, you yeah, know. you got a little Walter White and, in you. I think you know the uh, the anarchist yeah. cookbook is banned for a
1: reason. We don't want to get this book banned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 I had this uh, you know little recipe for how to make explosives and in, in science, Miller and the editor said that probably best we don't have
0: that i think that's right because what you want henry is you want people to be able to get your book you don't want it banned and i think this is a perfect opportunity to tell people how can they get your your book that is clearly available you know it's not in any book pile that's getting burned currently uh even here in the states we're getting a little crazy with that but you know your book's available how can people get it how can people get in touch with you
1: It's easiest to get uh, the book on a Kindle or other device these days. Uh, And you can get it on Amazon or any other, you know, other online repositories of books are available. Um, uh, And you can get it from, it is available in print, from a print-on-demand site um, from a publisher who's, who's, Name is he's going to kill me when I've forgotten (laughs) the name of my publisher, Uh, and I will tell you what it is presently. (laughs) Re Re uh, Reanimus Press, Reanimus Press, and you can get you you can get it as a paperback from Reanimus Press in Golden, Colorado, or you can get it as a download um, from Amazon uh, and um, or other online stores and it's perfectly available and even now all these years later well,
0: you know he said it's an so. older book but science never gets old and you've got some some great solves
1: here uh well i do sometimes wonder whether i should dig it out from under its rock and do some more updating or write some more bits or uh, maybe i will there's a new series out
0: by the way ring of power there's a whole new tv series here. Yeah. uh but what about social media what Really quick, social media. How
1: can people get in on social media? Do you do that? Do you? uh... Well, I'm on Instagram, Henry G22. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter as end of the pier at end of the pier because I live in a seaside town with a pier. Uh, And basically, I'm very, very easy to find. I'm I'm not I'm, you know, quite easy, easy to get in touch with Um, my latest book that's out is called A Very Short History of Life on Earth. And that has got a website called AVeryShortHistoryOfLifeOnEarth.com and all my contact details are on that. And I have a blog as well, which you can easily find. And so um you just have to go to the web and thrash around randomly for a bit and quite soon you'll bump it to me.
0: I will make it easy to find people. So don't worry about that, Henry. Uh, people will just be able to point and click and find you in in a split second and of course if you want to find this show Fascinating Nouns is the website we are on Twitter at Fascinating Noun Facebook at Fascinating Nouns and you know you mentioned your book Henry uh, The Short History of Life on Earth we did a whole episode uh, on that as well we did I'm going to link to that we have to you know that's the if you want to know how life worked and how it evolved that's the book for you and we had quite a discussion Uh, but I want to thank you so much for taking time out to talk to me about Middle Earth and you know i'm sure you're gonna write something amazing we'll have you on much sooner than we did this time because i always enjoy our chat so thank you so much for being on the show today
1: thank you very much dan always a pleasure
0: and i want to thank everyone for listening have a good night fascinating nouns is a glenn co production and is hosted and produced by me daniel j glenn the show producer for this episode was sarah brandt The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode you're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is, once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. And speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of FascinatingNouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.